Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 22. Last week we looked at the parable of the wedding feast, which is found only in Matthew. There's a somewhat similar rendition in Luke 14, but this is the only, which would have been probably nine months before what is said in Matthew 22, the chronology calendar. And we saw in, Matthew, in the parable of the wedding feast, um, an invitation went out. Look at the Greek word for invitation there is kaleo. And then we saw down in verse 14, called is the adjective version which derived from that same Greek word, kaleo, kletos. And so, one of the main things we talked about last week, we went through the whole thing, is verse 14, uh, which says, for many, in the New King James Version, for many are called, but few are chosen. And we look at this because the Calvinists try, try to bring this up and say, look, you know, there's only a few that are chosen. God's picking and choosing who's going to be saved and who isn't going to be saved. And we saw how that didn't mesh together with what Jesus was actually saying throughout this whole parable. How he sent out a kaleo, a call, an invitation. Uh, and it was sent out to as many as could be sent out to. It was sent out to the ones who originally came to. The invitations were originally given to a certain group of people. The well, invitation went out again and again. They rejected, rejected, even to the point where they persecuted the messengers that were sent to them. Some were apathetic about it. And then they rejected. And so we see throughout the whole parable here, the reason there was rejection was not because God picked them for rejection, because they, according to verse 3, at the very end of verse 3, they were not willing to come. This, of course, supports this doctrine of free will that we believe in and comes against this doctrine of predestination that God picks and chooses who's going to be saved and who isn't. And of course, the word translated as chosen in verse 14 is the Greek word eklektos, which can mean choice, excellent, worthy, which to go right along with what it says um, in verse uh, 8. It says, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So there was an invitation sent out, there was a calling that went out, but not all were worthy. Not all were choice, not all were excellent in that sense. Okay, And... Um, we went to uh, uh, the Luke version, not the Luke version of this, but the Luke when Luke when Jesus talked about this in Luke 14. And in Matthew 22, we see that the people's response is mostly violent, the violent response. And God's response to that is that he was furious with them. But do you have to have a violent response to God's messenger for God to be angry with you? Not according to Luke's passage, not according to Luke's rendition. He says that they're just apathetic. They've kind of just made excuses. And so this, this should teach us something for those in, in our congregation here that are not yet Christians who understand what is required of them. All it takes is for you to be apathetic. You don't have to kill God's messengers. You don't have to stone God's messengers or treat God's messengers unfairly. You can just be apathetic. And remember, when we're going, going through Matthew... He uh, pronounced woes upon whole cities. And these cities he's pronouncing woes upon weren't cities that stoned him or wanted to throw him off a cliff or wanted to kill him. These cities were simply, he did all these, these wonderful miracles there, they were simply apathetic toward them. He pronounced woes upon whole cities because they're apathy toward Jesus Christ and his message and what he was doing in his work. <clears throat> of course, verse 7, we saw that one of the punishments for these original people rejecting him, who were the Jewish people, was the city would be burned up which is a prophetic thing that would happen in A.D. 70. 
And finally, uh, one last thing we talked about last week we kind of hit on quite a bit was this wedding garment that this friend did not have on. Now, is this wedding garment, was he missing the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that was transferred to him? Is that what he was missing? No, he was, he was of course, we need our garments cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. But then we must walk in holiness. I saw in Revelation that the the wedding garment is the righteous acts of the saints. And so God expects us to live holy, to live righteous. Of course, we're cleansed from our past sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we must live righteously. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous, according to 1 John 3, 7. Uh, Revelation... Hold on one second, let me get it here. <coughs> Chapter 19... And verses 7 and 8. Okay, so let's let's go to this week. We're going to finish up chapter 22 this week. Let's start reading in verse uh, 15. Before we do, anything anyone wants to mention that I, I may have talked about last week they wanted to just bring up again as a reminder? Anything else that I missed? Well, this chapter, right. Right, in Revelation, how they had soiled their garments again. We're sinning. They need to be cleansed again. Yeah, so it, it, if we do soil our garments again as Christians, we need to go back to the cleansing blood of 1 John 1 9. He that confesses sin is faithful, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God's, God's faithful to do that if we'll confess, if we'll agree with Him about our sin and forsake it. I don't know how much you Yeah, that's verse 9. And the highways is the place where people leave the city. It's a major road where they leave the city. And so you're, you're reaching everybody. You're trying to reach as many people as possible. It's very strategic. And you're saying, go to this place. You're not going to a place where there's nobody. You're going to a place where there's lots of people. So you can reach lots of people at one time. And that's the whole point of it. Okay, starting in verse 15. <coughs> Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. They sent to him their disciples with their Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But just perceived their weakness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius and said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled, and left him, and went their way. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife, and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married. And having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. <coughs> For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they are like the angels of God in heaven. 
But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God, and the God of Jacob? God is the God of the dead, but of the living. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. Okay, so we see in verse 15 that the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. The word entangle there is also it's like a trap, a snare was used for trapping animals. You know, when you're trapping an animal, uh, Brother John's done it quite a few times, you put a little bait in there to entice them into there. And then once they get in there, oh, they're trapped. So that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to entangle. They're trying to entrap. They're trying to ensnare Jesus in his talking. But they were cowardly about it. Who did they send to go entrap Jesus? Did they go themselves? No. They sent the disciples, their disciples, and they sent one of their enemies, in their eyes, the Herodians. So the Pharisees, they didn't like the Roman rule over them. They considered it oppression. They thought the Messiah was going to come and deliver them from the Roman oppression. The Herodians, according to their name, supported who? Herod. Herod was not appointed by God. Herod was not appointed by the Jewish people. Herod was point, appointed by the Roman government system. And um, if we were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 17, you don't have to go to these references if you want to, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 15, you'll see that it was one of the laws that a stranger should not rule over them. And there should be someone from their midst. In fact, let me just go there, I'll read it to you real quick. Deuteronomy 17, uh, verses 14 to 15. It's part of the law of Moses here. And the first part of it is kind of prophetic. Verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a, excuse me, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. That's exactly what they did. Many years later, after they had judges rule over them, Samuel was the last judge to rule over them, and they asked for a king. It says in verse 15, You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, to set his king over you, that you may not set a you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And who was set over them? Herod. And he was not chosen by them, not chosen by God, it was chosen by the Roman government. And so the Pharisees wanted to obey the law of Moses, they were against this. The Herodians were supportive of this. So you have these two enemies, we've seen this in the past, the Pharisees and Sadducees joining together, which the leaven of them is hypocrisy. And the same leaven we see here, he calls it what in verse eighteen? Hypocrites. So even the Herodians were hypocrites. Uh, but the Her you know, most Jewish people did not like the Roman rule over them. They considered it to be ungodly, wrong. And so they wanted to throw it off. We even see uh, the Maccabeans try to throw it off. Their revolt. 
And then there's another revolt that happens after Jesus is gone, where they try to uh, throw off the Roman rule again. <coughs> and so the Herodians came to him, and they were saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Um, do you think they mean that? No, it's just words coming off their lips. They don't really mean it. It's uh, They're patronizing Jesus. They're, they're, they're hypocritical uh, comments um, to try to make themselves look innocent and righteous in the eyes of the people. Uh, in fact, let's just go to Luke 20. He gives us a little more insight on this. Luke's account of this. Luke chapter 20 and verse 20. <coughs> it says, uh, So they watched him, talking about Jesus, and sent spies who pretended to be righteous. Wow. I mean, that, that should tell them something about themselves already. They're pretending to be righteous. That they might seize him on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. So we're seeing a little bit of what their motive is behind what they're asking him, back in Matthew and, and Luke as well, that they want to seize him. They're pretending to be righteous. So that's the flattery coming out in them by saying, if the people, they esteem Jesus. They saw him as a good teacher at the least, as a prophet, maybe as the Messiah. And so they wanted to, you know, kind of get the people on their side. They didn't want the people against them. And so we saw that a couple weeks ago when they didn't want the people against them. They feared the multitudes in verse 46 of Matthew 21. And so they, they, they're giving him this flattery. So the first part of, of verse 16, what they're saying there is just flattery. It's just, uh, you know, they're lying. They're hypocrites. They're not saying the truth. But the second part probably is true. They probably do believe this part. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. That doesn't mean Jesus doesn't literally care about these. He's saying that he doesn't care what people think about him, what they say about them. He, he has no fear of man. He fears God, which is the way we should be. He's not allowing man to direct what he says, what he thinks, what he believes, and what he does, which is the way we should be. We should never allow fear of man to direct what we say, what we think, what we believe or what we do. That's is not the that's not wisdom. That's not knowledge. It's the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. And Jesus was wise. And so they were probably telling the truth about the second part. I mean they they'd seen what he had done. How people wanted to kill him so many times that he didn't care. He was going to tell the truth anyway. That's what we need to do. So here's the question. Tell us therefore what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, they're trying to catch him in his words here, right? And so what's the possible outcomes uh, to the answer? They, you know, they were thinking to themselves that it's probably only one of two answers Jesus could give here. Uh, one would be he's against paying taxes. Now, what would happen then? Be against Caesar. And what would the Herodians do? Just like Luke 20 said, they want to seize him and deliver him to the government. You see, the, the, the Roman government, they didn't bother the Jewish people. They didn't bother other, other religions for the most part, as long as they weren't causing problems. But if they were causing problems in an uprising, then, now we have problems. What was one of the, what was the, the uh, let's go to John chapter 19 for a second here. I think that's where it is. <coughs> when Pilate, he knew Jesus was innocent, didn't want to condemn him. There was one thing uh, that he said Let's see here. That the Jewish people said to him, that was kind of like the thing that made him go forth and do something. Let's see here. 
Okay, verse 12 of John 19. And then Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. That was the thing that got Pilate to go over the hump, over the hill, and finally say, okay, I, gotta, I have to put him to death. Because he, he didn't want to be an enemy of Caesar's. Uh, the ironic thing, given a little piece of history here, Pilate, you know, he ended up being banished to France and dying there, not being a ruler anymore. That was his ending. So his, his appeal, he got to try to get Caesar to be his friend by squashing this, this revolt, didn't work in his favor anyway. Didn't work in his favor. And so the one answer he could have given would have made him an enemy in the eyes of the state. Would have caused him to do something about it. The other answer he could have given is say, yes, I'm, I'm for paying taxes to Caesar. Now who's his enemy? The Jewish people. The Pharisees. So you see, they, they're trying to kind of promote, promote a false dilemma here. A false Because in their mind, they think there's only two answers to give. But there's a third answer, which you just did give, which is a very wise answer, which kind of shut their mouth, didn't it? They had nothing to say. But you know, before we get to that here in verse 16, uh, verse 18, I'm sorry, Jesus perceived their wickedness, you know, him being God in the flesh, he perceived their heart, knew the intent of their heart. He said, why do you test me, hypocrites? This one verse right here, in my mind, uh, puts Calvinism upside down, this idea that we're born a sinner, we have a sinful nature, we can't help but the sin, um, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, the, you know, these words are some pretty harsh words to someone who has no other option but to be a hypocrite. You know, I don't go to a dog who's barking, who slobbers, who likes to lick. You know, I don't go to a dog and punish it for not flying. I don't go to a dog and punish it for not clucking or, uh, you know, crowing like a rooster. Because it's not its nature. And so for Jesus to give such harsh words, he called them hypocrites, pretenders. It's, it's pretty harsh of Jesus if they had no other option but to be a hypocrite. This idea that they're predestined to be that way, they're born this way, they can't help but to be this way. In my mind, is turned upside down on his heels because why would Jesus, the just God of all the universe, who does not play favorites, he shows no favoritism towards men, why would he treat men this way if they had no other choice? Anyone in their right mind can see they'd be unfair. But obviously they had a choice in the matter. They had a choice to be a hypocrite or not. They had a choice to give false flattery and try to test Jesus and catch him in his words or not. That was their choice to make. And so Jesus asked for the, the money. They showed him the money. And he says, whose inscription is on it? Just like, you know, just like today, we see on our mind, we see presidents on it. We see our leaders on it. Back in those days, same thing. The leader was on it. It says in verse 21, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. And so what Jesus is saying here, there's no conflict. You're presenting a conflict. The Pharisees thought there was a conflict by having the Romans rule over them, by having a government over them. The Herodians thought there was a conflict as well. But Jesus said there is no conflict. You give to the government what belongs to them. The government is established by God. They deserve taxes. Read Romans 13 for more. They deserve taxes. Okay? And you give to God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? Everything. Everything belongs to God. Even if... There, now, there can be a conflict at times, but not in this situation with his taxes. No conflict here. But if there's a conflict between government and obeying God, which would you choose? God. You have to obey God. 
Don't obey government. You saw the Book of Acts, see them running into this over and over again. And so, there is no conflict here. Government equals taxes, God equals obedience. There's no problem. And they marveled at this. Um, and let's go to back to Luke 20 for a second here, and let's read what the end of it says. <coughs> and you can see this is going to bolster what I'm trying to tell you here, they're trying to do to Jesus. Chapter 20 and verse 26, this is right after he got done saying this. He says, uh, it says uh, but they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. They marveled at his answer and kept silent. So they're trying to discredit him in the eyes of the people. They, want, they used to have the people on their side, but they don't right now. They're trying to get the people back on their side by catching him in his words but they were not able to. <clears throat> and they obviously were doing the former, paying taxes, without doing the latter, giving God the obedience he deserves. They weren't doing that. This reminds me a lot of, uh, of these conservative Christians we see in America who are generally Republicans, usually, uh, who are very political. They will uh, watch Fox News, uh, like it's it, their life depends upon it. Um, they'll vote for a Republican candidate, even if he's for abortion and for all kinds of ungodly wickedness. They'll vote for him. Uh, this whole idea of voting for the lesser of two evils—you're still voting for evil. How dare we? You're still voting for evil. How dare we vote for evil? Uh, and so it reminds me a lot of things. You see them. They'll go to political rallies. They'll go to Tea Party rallies. They'll go to. The, they'll promote their. Uh, political person with a sign out in front of their yard. They'll give out flyers, put a bumper sticker in the back of their car. But what are they doing for Jesus? How are they preaching his gospel? How are they promoting his gospel? Are they putting bumper stickers for him on the back of their car? Are they putting a sign out in front of their yard for him? Are they holding the sign out in public? Are they going to a rally for Jesus Christ and going to the highways, byways, and heads and compelling people to come into the church? Well, for the most part, they're not. So they're, they're kind of just like these Herodians, where they're they think, do, you, do they really think change is going to happen through the governmental process? When does that ever change a wicked heart to a holy heart? When does that ever change a sinner to a saint? It hasn't happened once time yet. If they really want to change their world that they live in, the culture they live in, the, the, the people they live around, they ought to preach the gospel, they'll get saved, and they'll be changed, transformed by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's how change happens. And then the government we live in, it'll change automatically because the people within that culture, within the government, are changed themselves. That's the way it works. Not through this political process nonsense. And so their plan failed, and this is likened to a farmer uh, putting a trap out for a raccoon, putting some bait in it, him going in there, stealing the bait, not getting trapped, and laughing at him from afar. That's what it's like him to. They tried to trap Jesus, but he's untrappable. And so they tried to discredit him and people, and it did not happen. Now, verse 23, different group of people now. And keep in mind, he's all, he's like three different people. It's kind of like the conservative Christians, the liberal Christians, and the emergent church. You know, none of them are, none of them are, are together, but they're gathering together to come against Jesus. And, and whether these people know it or not, that's kind of the way it is in the world anyway. And so, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And this out, you can, I can help you remember this. That's why they were sad, you see. Because they had no belief in the resurrection. What a sad existence. I mean, you die and that's it. 
That's it. You might as well be an atheist. If you didn't believe in that, what a sad existence. I'd be sad, too, if there wasn't a resurrection. I'd be sad, too, if I couldn't live with my God for all eternity. But it was here, and that's it. And so they, they present this, uh, this silly little situation here in verses 24 uh, through 27, which is not in reality. Okay? Um, is it possible this could happen? Possible. And, you know, they're talking about the law of Moses here, so it is possible it could happen. And before the law of Moses came along, we see this happening in Genesis with Judah, before we had the law of Moses. So there was actually kind of a law already going around about this. But seven? Come on. What they're doing is presenting a hypothetical situation, which really will never happen, or most likely never happen, to try to discredit the doctrine of the resurrection. This reminds me of this, you know, our doctrine of passive non-resistance, and how people try to make up these silly little hypothetical situations to try to disprove it. Oh, what if this guy comes to your house and he wants to rape and murder all your people? You mean you're not going to try to stop him with a gun or a weapon? Yeah, that, that's this, uh, this silly little scenario they produce. They're assuming, one, that God won't protect you. They're assuming that there's not another way to get the person to stop. So many of things that are assuming, and that's what, they're assuming many things too. And Jesus is going to show them they're assuming things. He's, in fact, he says in verse 29, he says that uh, you do not know the scriptures. That's why you're mistaken. And how many problems have arise because people don't know the Scriptures? They don't know the Scriptures. Friends, you've got to know the Scriptures. You've got to know them. You have to be Bereans. You have to hide His Word in your heart that you may not sin against Him. You have to read it and you have to study it. Reading it isn't good enough. Studying isn't good enough. You've got to do both. You've got to memorize it and put it in your heart. Not only so you can be holy yourself, but so you can have a sharp, long sword, so when you go into the highways and byways and hedges, you have the word of God, which is quicker than a double-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and cuts quick to the heart. So the sinners can see what they must do to be saved, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by, by the word of God. If you don't know the word of God, how can someone have faith and hear and be saved? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word, not, not by uh, unbiblical cliches. I had a young lady come to me at Murray State University on Thursday, six months in the faith, and she's trying to rebuke me. Now, I'm willing to receive it if I need to be rebuked, even by someone who's six months in the faith. But I explained to her how that was not really biblical for her to come to me and do that, and then she gave me biblical cliches. She gave me bumper sticker theology. She said, we're not perfect, we're just forgiven. You know, one cross plus three nails equals forgiven. These, these little bi these bumper stickers you see, and I gave her Bible, Bible. And she'd make an assertion. I said, well, show me where that's in the Bible. And I'm willing to receive it. And she couldn't show me in the Bible where it was. And so she was left with her hands empty. If you're going to correct someone, you've got to know the Word of God. You've got to know the Word of God. And so they didn't know the Word of God. They were mistaken because they did not know the Scriptures, nor the power of God. And problems arise from both these things. You know, 2 Timothy 3.5 talks about people having a form of godliness, but denying the power of it. And from such, turn away. From such, turn away. And so, Jesus is going to explain to them why they're wrong. And he says, first he, expl he explains their, the misunderstanding about what happens when we're resurrected. In fact, let's go to Luke chapter 20. And he gives a little more detail what Jesus said here. 
<coughs> chapter 20, starting in verse uh, 34. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage of this age. But those who are counted worthy, that sounds really familiar, we just read last week, counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. It doesn't mean you're equal to angels in every sense. It doesn't mean you become an angel. Uh, it means you're, you're equal to angels in this respect. Okay? So there's differences for humans in this age and in the age to come, which is talking about the millennium, Christ coming to rule. There's differences uh, with us. And, of course, we know we'll have a glorified body. <coughs> and uh, so let's just talk about these angels-human distinctions that we see here. Because there are differences between humans and angels. And you see this in Hebrews when... So about Jesus, he did not come in the form of angels, but in the form of humans, in human flesh. Okay, The difference between the two. How many humans did God start out with? One originally, and then how many after that? Okay. So when I'm referring to how many started, I'm saying how many did he create himself? And so he created Adam, and then he created Eve from Adam. Okay, so he started with two. And so if, if he wants to remedy this, uh, this situation with only having two, what must, must happen? There must be reproduction, right? There must be marriage, and there must be reproduction. And so with human beings, God started with two. In order to increase that, he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Okay? So that's how he got more humans. Now how many angels did he start out with? Everybody, great, that's good, yeah. We don't know the exact number. There's, there's set, uh, probably millions, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but the fact is, he didn't create only two and need them to reproduce. He created as many as he wanted to create, and that was it. No further reproduction needed. No marriage needed. That's really what I think Jesus is getting at here. But one of the whole points of marriage, besides remedying loneliness, as we see in the beginning, is... Reproduction. And according to, to Malachi, he wanted godly offspring. That was the point of it. He wanted the godly offspring. And so when we get into the kingdom, what Jesus is basically saying here is all the humans that I want, I have. It's done. No more reproduction is needed. All the reproduction that's going to be done has been done. That's all there is to it. And so angels can't reproduce. Okay? They cannot reproduce. They can't reproduce and have a half-human, half-angel. Okay? We talked about this point quite a few times in this fellowship, going back to Genesis 6 here. The interpretation there of Genesis 6 where, you know, angels came down to the daughters of man and they, and they had, you know, they reproduced with them. Well, I think what Jesus is saying here, angels were not made to reproduce. Okay? And when we get into the kingdom, we are no longer going to be made to reproduce. That's the point he's making here. Okay? And so that's the whole point of the passage, because the whole point of your brother taking over your wife, if you die and leave her childless, is to do what? To bring forth offspring. And so angels can't reproduce, and when we get into the kingdom, we won't be able to reproduce either. So once Judgment Day comes, 
God has all the humans that he wants. All the humans that he's going to get. No more marriage equals no more children. Okay? So that's the point I think he's making here. Um, so the other details, I don't really know the answers to them. Um, you know, the question becomes, rising in my eyes, you know, when we get up, when we're in the kingdom of heaven, are we going to have just a room for a, bed, a house for each person, individual, by ourselves? You know, uh, are we going to live with our wife, but just not reproduce anymore? Um, I don't really know the answers to those questions, uh, and that's okay. Uh, but we do know that we won't be reproducing anymore, and that's the point that Jesus is making here. And then in verse uh, 31, he quotes, in verse 32, he quotes from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. And the reason he's quoted from Exodus, he could have quoted from many scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about the resurrection. The reason he quotes from Exodus chapter 3 is because the Sadducees, they esteemed the five books of Moses more than any other books. And so he was stepping into their worldview and imploding it from the inside out. It'd be kind of like going to the Quran, talking to Muslims and imploding their, their world from, from the Quran, using the Quran to show them how they're wrong. Or using the Book of Mormon to show a Mormon how he's wrong. He was using the five books they trust in, the five books they look to, and he was showing that they're wrong. And so in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, uh, you know, God is speaking to Moses in a burning bush, that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, God is not the God of dead, but of the living. So what is, how does saying that disprove what the Sadducees are saying? How does that show them that the resurrection is true by quoting that? Yeah. I mean, they've been dead for hundreds of years by then. And God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of living. So he was saying that they are alive somewhere. But he's not just saying that. Because that doesn't disprove the resurrection, does it? Because the resurrection is the resurrection of the body. And so if they're still alive spiritually somewhere, that doesn't disprove the resurrection. So step inside the Jewish mind for a second here. What was promised unconditionally to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The land. The inheritance. The physical inheritance. In order to inherit the physical inheritance, you must have a what? Physical body. And so he's saying to them, the Jewish people, in this situation, the Sadducees, and the people who are listening in, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises I made to them will not fail. I have not lied. And basically what they're saying by saying their resurrection is not true, they're calling God a liar. They're calling him a liar. And so, I'll give you some scripture references you can look up for yourself. Uh, the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, unconditional promises to them and their seed. Now, if you look up in the New King James Version, I say descendants, but no, it's singular. Hey, well, let's just look at them real quick. I think we have let's look at it. Genesis chapter 13. I won't take too much time on this. <coughs> Right, Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse 14. The promise given to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all land which you see, I give to you and your seed, it's singular there, forever. So forever is given to him and his seed. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, but if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your seed 
also could be numbered. Now, how is it possible that a seed singular could be like the dust of the earth? I'm talking about one seed here. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because we realize in the New Testament that the seed is Jesus. And how do we take part in that inheritance? By being in Him. So this one seed could be multiple things. It could be tons of descendants because we are in that seed. So the seed has singularity and it has multiplicity because of the doctrine we see in the New Testament. But this is given to Abraham, Abram at this point, unconditionally to him and his seed forever. Forever. And so if God does not fulfill this promise to Abram, God is a liar. But God is not a liar. Genesis chapter 26. Let's see the promise to Isaac now. Starting in verse 1. It says, There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your seed I give all these lands. Now perform the oath that I swore to Abraham your father, and I will make your seed multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your seed all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So this was promised to Isaac and his seed. And it can be to many within that one seed because by being in Christ, you have eternal life. By being in Christ, you have a part in the inheritance. You become co-heirs with Christ. Okay, then let's look at Jacob, Genesis chapter 28, <coughs> verses 12 through 15. Then, then Jacob dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were descending, or ascending and descending on it. That's Jesus, the latter. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your seed. Also your seed shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, the north and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this, this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then, did Jacob ever receive that land? No, but he says, I am going to bring you back to this land. The only way that could possibly happen is if he gets risen from the grave with a bodily resurrection and inherits the land with Abraham and with Isaac. And so Christ, these promises were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob unconditionally, and, uh, of course, to the rest of the Jewish people, conditionally, because they had to obey. Now, they didn't obey, so they have to do the same thing we have to do as Gentiles. They have to be in the seed in Jesus Christ. So that's what, that's what they would have been hearing from Jesus when they heard this in verse 32. Uh, the God of the dead, the God of the living. That's not, just because they're alive somewhere in Hades does not, mean, does not disprove their idea that the resurrection does not happen. But by understanding what the Jews would have thought about this, that these promises were made to them for this land, for this inheritance, it disproves this idea of no resurrection. And he shows them, listen, you're calling God a liar. 
by saying these things. They're calling God a liar. Okay, I think we'll stop there this week. Finish up the rest of chapter 22 next week. Alright, does anyone have uh, questions? Objections, things they want to add? What I've been you mentioned that Herod was not raised up by God. Not chosen by God, not anointed by God as the kings of the Old Testament, like Saul and and David and and uh, Solomon and so on and so forth. Yeah, but if if that's the way we're going to interpret this, then we have to go back to Deuteronomy 17, where it talks about this, and it just means nothing then. That's that's what God is saying to. I mean, we can read it again. Um, if we're going to apply what Deuteronomy 17 is saying in a broad context like that, then it becomes really meaningless for God to even say that. Because telling them, listen, you are not to accept a stranger. Um, you are to put a one of your brothers there and the ones that I have chosen. Now, if God chooses every king, then that becomes a, a kind of like a meaningless statement there. So let's just read it again. Well, you know that, that verse that I'm talking about? It's in the Psalms, I think, somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where it is. Um, God does raise up, God does tear down. I agree with that. Deuteronomy uh, 17, verse 14, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, you, and you and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. But surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you will set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And so Harry was a foreigner. So according to this verse, God could not have chosen him to be it. In the context of that situation. Right, right. And uh, uh, God, you, you look at the situation when God chose Saul, he chose him out. He chose David out. He chose Solomon out. So these were chosen people. And then, of course, they're the sentence after them. Um, so these were, Harry was not chosen by Deuteronomy 70. That's why the Pharisees were against it. The Herodians, they were for Herod being there, and they were for the Roman government, so they were for it. <coughs> so. Oh, that was that was way before the law of Moses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, I guess in, in in sense of everything in the world, either is done by God or allowed by God. We know that. Um, but I would never assume that uh, Obama was chosen by God. Uh, the American people chose Obama. We have a different process than than they did. When it comes to presidents and kings, completely different process. We we vote for it. Now there could be some corruption in that. For a lot, I mean, I don't really know, but the point is, it's not the same process. But obviously, God allowed it to happen, and and because it has happened, God can use as a judgment upon America that this wicked man is in is in power, and uh, who knows what will come next? Who knows what will come next?